Now, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our speaker this afternoon. You know, um, obviously we, we said we want to tackle some of the issues that we as leaders are really facing in our churches, in our ministries. So I thought Meg did a superb job for us yesterday talking on the whole issue of uh, leading in a racialized world. I just found that so helpful and the transformative leadership we're called to bring. Uh, this afternoon, David Bennett's going to be speaking to us on reaching a world of LGBTQI+. And we'll all know this is an issue that we are facing. We are getting questions about on a regular basis. I, David is, is a fantastic speaker. I got to know him a few years ago when he came and spoke at an apologetics training day uh, back when I was at Grace Church in Chichester. But a few speakers, I have to tell you, David stole the show. That, that's what went on, let's be honest. He did, David stole the show. And it was just a delight over that sort of weekend to get to know him and, and meet a man with such a deep and passionate love for Jesus as well. So David's based at Oxford University. He's recently been appointed to the Faculty of Theology and Religion there. Um, his PhD has been submitted to Oxford this year. I looked up the title of it and I didn't understand it, but I'll let you do that for yourself. So, uh, maybe you can explain. Um, but he's, he's also a, uh, a visiting theologian at Reality Church in San Francisco. And I want to recommend his book, which I was supposed to pick up to wave at you, and I forgot I'll pick it up and wave it at you at the end. It's called A War of Loves. I really recommend it as a church pastor. It's a book that I have in my armory, and often when this subject has come up, what I've said to people is, ah, oh, before we talk anymore, I want you to read this book. And when you've read it, then we'll have a conversation. It's that kind of resource, but it will bless you, and uh, how much better to meet the author. So can we give an enormous welcome to David Bennett as he comes to speak? to West Point um, back before the COVID lockdown, um, and there was just some really, really special times in different um, kind of seminar contexts, and yeah, so I just, you know, I always I wel feel very welcome here and very much like this is family. You know, I'm a charismatic evangelical at heart. <laughs> um, that's the tradition in which God invited me into relationship, and it's such a special tradition. So I just want to honor Steve and his wife, Jo, and their just love of me and their support of me in the early days of working out my vocation with all of these questions. Um, I have other friends in the audience, Stuart, and others who've spoken on this topic. And, you know, I think it's really important to say, like, I'm not some special guru with a magic wand um, that can kind of, you know, solve the issue of sexuality. I'm, I'm more a person that, um, as, as we've gone through the, the lockdown and seen the kind of landscape we're in, uh, I've just become more and more aware how he is strong in our weakness and that we must just strip things off the celebrity kind of culture. And so it's kind of hard because you say you're studying at Oxford and it's a wonderful, beautiful grace from God. But I, you know, at the same time, I'm just like Paul. I'm just this weak person trying to follow Jesus. And so I want to bring you on that journey with me of 
what's really, really it is like to face the mystery of human sexuality and gender. And we know in scripture that God actually, you know, speaks through Paul and he says, you know, marriage is a mystery. And so I think we sometimes dissect everything else to do with sexuality and gender and put that in the category of ethics. But marriage is this big mystery. And I think actually, Paul, we could probably extend that to everything else. That sexuality goes right to the heart and gender goes right to the heart of what the gospel is and how it has been worked out in creation. So, you know, you you talk about these topics with fear and trembling. (laughs) You talk about them in the fear of the Lord and the cleansing of that, the the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to pray before I start um, because it's ultimately the Lord and his heart that I just want to come through um, my story and how he's worked in my life. So Father God, I thank you so much for this apostolic sphere of churches. Lord, I thank you for the DNA of your son that is in this church by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that this, this talk, this time together, would bring that out even more, that Christ be glorified, the Holy Spirit fanned into flame, and where there's a grief of the Holy Spirit, Lord, help us together in this moment to recognize that we have not always done well as a church with the LGBTQI plus community. And Lord, thank you that there is a redemption even just in being able to do this talk, that that voice is being heard in a way that does not compromise your gospel, but actually holds it out to the world. Thank you, Lord, that you are bringing many different voices with many different experiences together to stand and to witness to you on this topic. And thank you that you are doing that in a landscape that feels so fraught and hard. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a personal hashtag uh, that I like to start my talks with. Um, It's hashtag fabulous made glorious. So why, why do I have this personal hashtag? Well, one, I'm, you know, the generation before TikTok, so I love Instagram, <laughs> and um, that's where I exist virtually, anyway, far too much, um, point of discipleship. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, the Lord has grace. Um, <laughs> but yeah, sometimes I see people put hashtag fabulous, made glorious. But I think the reason I have a personal hashtag like that is because when I speak... I'm aware of people in the room who are queer or LGBTQI+, or same-sex attracted, whatever particular um, way you want to uh, describe that experience, that part of your identity. Or, and, and I think it makes everybody in the room go, oh, yeah, he's not going to be like stuffy, religious, you know, Bible, Bible thumper. Um, and I think it's also to just show incarnational solidarity to people who don't even agree with me about what the ethical endpoint is for those questions. Um, And that's something I'm trying to learn to do because that's what God did in Christ. He came and he showed incarnational solidarity with people that completely disagreed with him, even to the point of becoming God's enemies. (laughs) And so that is why partially I call myself, I have this hashtag, hashtag fabulous made glorious, But it's also a deeper theological statement that, you know, in evangelical charismatic 
theology, we have a strong Augustinian bent. We love the doctrine of original sin, and that's a good thing because it protects us from various heresies like Pelagianism. Um, you know, we can do it all ourselves. There's this inner spark that's us and we're good and we did it. And, you know, that dangerous lack of humility we can sometimes find ourselves with a works-based theology. But the problem sometimes with that theology is we don't have a very good doctrine of humanity. We start to say, well, our humanity's bad. We start to say, well, everything about us is not beautiful or good, as Genesis affirms when God creates us. You are ornately and beautifully made in his image. That's what Genesis says. We were all made fabulous at the beginning. And actually, homosexual desire or same-sex attraction is in some sense related to an originary good. That originary good was that we were made with desire, that God desired us, and that meant his will was to create us fabulously, (laughs) and that we had desire to reciprocate that love. And sometimes we just have to be so careful that our doctrine of sin does not erase that originary good. That doesn't mean I think Same-sex desire is necessarily part of the originary picture, but desire is. And therefore, same-sex desire is actually, um, in some way, corresponds to an originary good, being made fabulous. So I don't have to see being gay or same-sex attracted always as a bad thing. Actually, at the base of it, um, I'm going to get this quote up, Um, at the base of it is God waiting. And it's interesting, um, I'm going to try this little buzzy thing, hang on, nope, okay, is that it? No. Anyway, there's a laser I think, but it's fine, you can read it. Um, This is the father of quantum um, physics, pretty cool guy, uh, Werner Heisenberg, and he says when he first looked into the mystery of natural sciences, that he took the first gulp from the glass and it made him an atheist. And I think we live in a culture that's theologically taken a very superficial gulp of that glass. Maybe not in other areas, <laughs> maybe gone a bit too deep, but theologically, it's just so superficial. Um, and I think when I was a young 14-year-old, uh, this is kind of what happened to me the question of sexuality made me an atheist. That was my number one objection. And I'd say probably today this is the number one objection next to some of the deep sins to people of different ethnicities and, you know, backgrounds which you've covered, um, that's blocking the reputation and goodness of the gospel. Um, But the reality is that when we actually drink deep on this topic, and I think sometimes we're afraid to do that, to think, oh, I'm going to lose my faith here. (laughs) Um, And what I've found, and I've just gone and done this crazy doctorate, which is, you know, right at the heart of this question, I just found God right at the bottom of the glass, like staring up at me, saying, here I am. Jehovah Sneaky. You know, um, (laughs) so... 
I mean, sometimes we just got to let the sneak happen, you know? Um, <laughs> so I decided in that, that spirit to do this doctorate at Oxford on this topic, and I was really struggling with it because I was like, I don't want everything in my life to be about being gay. Like, I love being gay. It's not a bad thing. It's hard. It's different. My desires are differently aligned with the created order. That makes it really hard and way more mysterious because I can't just go into a marriage like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. That concession is not open to me. That feels so unfair. Like, why would God allow that um, for me? And I think what's really interesting... It's because that concession in 1 Corinthians 7, and I'm not going to talk about it because you're all pastors slash leaders, you probably read that passage. And it's probably something that's in your mind all the time, pastorally. It's what I love about being gay is it's meant I have to go so much deeper with God. I couldn't just settle for a concession in scriptures. I actually had to say, I want to find what the life of holiness actually is, not just what an apostle said at one point in a really broken church that, you know what, this is better than burning with lust. Um, actually, <laughs> I want a better standard for my life. I want a greater vision than that for my personal kind of walk with the Lord. And I think that's why I see it as fabulous. But God doesn't just leave it there. He that mystery, that difficulty, that struggle that I go through, that is, pushes me into the mystery. And then God takes that suffering and he makes it into glory. He makes it glorious. Fabulous made glorious. It's not an erasure of that original fabulousness, but it's a transformation of it into a renewed creation that is so glorious. And I get to be that now on some level, still with a body that's groaning, still with the effects of the fall, still with same-sex desire that keeps saying, go the other way, <laughs> go the other way. <laughs> you know? And I get to learn to redirect that towards the glorious and I think that's a much deeper theology than what we have been given on this kind of, you know, flat line what the Bible says, and I better do it, otherwise I'm a bad Christian. And that's produced really bad marriages and really bad celibacy, <laughs> rather than this deeper model of the reorientation, rechanneling of that original eros, that original desire towards God, and finding at the bottom of the glass an eros a passionate love that gives up the sun in the spirit towards me every time. And what a secure anchor on which I can then, you know, navigate my identity and my humanity with him in that mystery. So that's just by way of beginning. Um, I'm going to talk a lot more about theology and this kind of stuff in in my seminar, but in this time, I just want to tell my testimony and then end on a really good, like, Old Testament passage, <laughs> um, because everyone thinks the Old Testament's really homophobic and, uh, you know, transphobic or something, but actually it's not, especially the prophets, they're pretty amazing. <laughs> um, so let's, let's go there together. We often hear the slogan, love is love is love, love is love is love is love is love, love. And it's like, but, but, but what is love? <laughs> um, a reality in my story is that 
I wasn't looking for God. I'd read 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Romans 1, um, yeah, Leviticus 18. I was like, yeah, okay, that's pretty clear. <laughs> Let's move right on from Christianity because I'm gay and that's just it. Um, I never read those passages in context. I never did a deep study, which I now have had the capacity to do at Oxford, and I'm telling you what I've discovered is so different to what I thought as that young 14-year-old who is looking at the Bible with a really, really hyper-Protestant, dodgy doctrine of Scripture that was like, just read it, that's what it says, and close it, and now do it. It wasn't like, actually know what Paul's talking about on some level and put it into context. And in my my seminar, I'll share more of what I've learned about those passages, and actually they've become some of my favorite passages in Scripture. But this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That means that the deepest love we can have is not actually sexual, or to use a broader term which isn't just sexual, erotic. Actually, the deepest love is when that eros is rechanneled towards self-sacrifice for God and someone else. And that is the love that we're called to echo back to Jesus' sacrifice for us. You can have no, there's no greater love than this than to lay down your life for your friends. And what I find fascinating about that is that isn't actually marriage. Jesus says that's the greatest love, is a form of heavenly friendship. And so that means you don't need marriage to flourish, but you do need that deeper, reordered, transformed eros that is brought through agape. And without that, you will not flourish because that's what we're all made for. And marriage is a reflection of that in creation, created order. So, yeah, that's how I would define love. There you go. Um, So as this 14-year-old in Sydney, Australia, who was raised in agnostic atheist home, um, I was really struggling with the mystery, and I wanted the answers, so I kept looking in science and on Google, and um, who, who knows that a Google search isn't the best way to educate yourself necessarily, um, but I didn't have the resources that a lot of young people have today to go and read widely on this, so it's a very little about this. You know, homosexuality was still almost like, not they'd moved on from that point and now it wasn't a disease or disordered in the psychology kind of associations. But it wasn't that recently before that that science actually said that it's a disorder. So it's actually a lot, a lot of the issue isn't just the church, it's also science. And actually, I don't find the scientific view that some churches, the old scientific view or pseudo-scientific view, very Christian at all, and yet the church has tried to hold on to it. Um, whereas I think scripture is much more about the cosmic mystery of sexuality than it is about trying to label things. <laughs> um, anyway, so I was in that whole quagmire. I was woke before woke was woke. Um, and I was seeing the future, and I, I was in a context which didn't see it and in a Christian school, raised in an agnostic atheist home. But what I think this brilliant quote from Henry Nouwen uh, shows us, and I, ne- I always put this up when I speak, because it's one of the deepest lessons I've ever learned about 
identity and sexuality is that we are so focused on rebellion from God as a church. Oh, the culture's in rebellion from God, and that's kind of true um, on a more superficial medium tier. But deep down, the temptation to self-rejection is actually what's producing those symptoms. And it's the love of God that is the solution to self-rejection. And it's not until underneath all of that activism and anger and bitterness that God comes in and touches that innermost part of our being with love that we can even begin to navigate these deep mysteries of sexuality and gender. And so I was controlled by self-rejection. I had to reject God because I had rejected myself. I thought God could never love me because I'm gay. And that's just a lie. <laughs> but I couldn't see that, and so I had to reject God to be safe from that self-rejection and from that sense of condemnation under the law, which we know Jesus came to take us out from under. So there I was in a park at the age of 14, and I had a Russian Orthodox boyfriend called Vladimir, and I've always had a slightly eccentric taste um, in potential partners. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so he's a lovely, lovely person. Vladimir was so lovely. We used to have Russian caravan tea and eat little raisin breads that his grandma, you know, Babushka had made for us. And we were just kind of these young 14, 15 year olds trying to deal with being queer. And um, one day, I think I'd been speaking too much about my need for love and intimacy and what do we do with being gay and everything. I think he was a bit overwhelmed. And so he brought me this little gift, which was a uh, amber cross with golden flecks in it. And he handed this to me and he said, I want you to have this as a gift. Because David, you're looking for a kind of love I can't give you. Like I'm a limited human being. <laughs> but like, I don't know, this is where I go kind of to deal with it as a Russian. <laughs> and there's, there's the gift. I was like, why would you give me a symbol of our oppression as a gift? Vladimir. <laughs> Have you not read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Romans 1 and Leviticus 18 and your father's the biggest homophobe I've ever seen because he's Russian Orthodox and this is just... And I'm like, okay, getting triggered. <laughs> Microaggression becomes macroaggression. Um, <laughs> so he kisses me to kind of shut me up. And I think it's a really important story to show you there really is virtue and beauty in gay relationships. It's not like these relationships are just cut off from that originary good. They're still definitely not the way God has called us to live in Christ, but we have to be careful not to be dualists, not to just delete everything good in those situations. And what I find amazing about this situation is he was witnessing to me he was trying to say, this love is what you need. And I was so controlled by self-rejection that I couldn't see that. And so even while I was a sinner, even though I was alienated from God, even when I couldn't see, there God had placed this cross. And anyway, as he's kissing me, a man pulls up on a motorbike, takes a large stone from um, 
the garden bed. I can remember smelling the petrol behind me as we were kissing and proceeded to throw this like half a brick against my back, this thud, and then drive off. And I remember just being like completely frozen. And I thought to myself, how could someone be that vile? How could someone do that to us, you know? Where does this come from? And then I looked down and there's the cross. And I said, right, I'm going to destroy Christianity. I'm going to become an activist that gets rid of this like, horrible ethical system with an imaginary la, like, la-la land in the sky, having a romance with some you know, first century <laughs> Jewish carpenter like, <laughs> that allows people to be gay and then like, punishes them for it with no way out. Like, what kind of sycophant is that? And that was my version of Christianity. And I just as passionately disbelieve in that Christianity today. But thankfully, I met the real Jesus. And actually, the real Jesus was there in that stoning, taking that stone with me, saying, I know what it's like to be rejected because of my identity, David. And don't ever forget this. And so um, I ended up, you know, I think that part of my story was so important. And, but I was still haunted by this desire for something more. This sensunct is the word that C.S. Lewis uses. This nostalgia for something I've never known that's in my body. This ache. And tons of atheists talk about it. I'm like, I know what that's pointing to. But I didn't know back then. And Sarah Coakley puts it this way, the only way in which desire can be safely acknowledged and explored is if it is understood most fundamentally as desire for God and just so as capable of purification and elevation. That God can take my sexuality and elevate it and purify it and renew it into something beautiful in celibacy. And that's not a lack of being desirous. It's actually the opposite. It's about intensifying desire safely towards the right goal, which is God. And I love that model from Sarah Coakley. I think that's such a deep, she's an amazing theologian. You might not know her. She's not really from our tradition, but she's really welcomed a lot of charismatic theology in her systematic theology, God's sexuality and the self. She was my examiner in my doctorate, Queering the Queer, How Does Gay Celibate Asceticism Renew and Inform the Role of Desire in Contemporary Anglican Theology? And um, we had a kind of academic chemistry in my examination, (laughs) because we were both like, let's desire God together. (laughs) Um, And the other examiner's like, what do I do with you two? Um, (laughs) It's quite a stoical man called Nigel Bigger. But um, anyway... Great, great guy, but anyway, so I, (laughs) that was a detour, Um, (laughs) I I was still stuck in this kind of quagmire of desire and trying to work it out, and I ended up at a psychic, um, because I still had this hunger, and so I went in and she read my tarot cards, and she said, David, you're a child of the light, you're destined to be with Jesus, the greatest mediator in the spiritual realms, Um, wow, and I was like, do you know who I am? 
I am going to destroy Christianity. And so I stormed out furious, asking for my $20 back, and ended up at the the cafe nearby, sipping my soy chai with my token feminist friend from school. We were ready to, like, destroy the establishment together. Um... We're going to study postmodern philosophy at uni. It's going to be so amazing. I'm going to do theatre. <laughs> become part of the art world. <laughs> um, and so I said, you know, well, actually, I just went, she said, I'm going to become a Christian. I'm so annoyed. She's one of those undercover evangelists. She's trying to use the psychic thing to, like, bring people to Christ. She's like, I don't know, Dave. Maybe you will become a Christian. Like, just be open. And I was like, no, I will never become a Christian. Mark my words. And it's really ironic today that I'm standing in front of you as a Christian evangelist, you know. (sighs) So you you end up eating your words with the Lord. But, um, so, (laughs) yeah. I actually met up with her in Sydney recently when I was back in Australia, and she's like, I remember. (laughs) Look at you now. (laughs) Um, And so then I went to kind of still wrestling with this desire and ended up Christmas lunch table 2008 with my uncle and he, he mentioned God and I went on that kind of diatribe I did with my boyfriend, only this time it was with the added padding of years of education um, at university in cultural studies, um, which was very like pro-queer and um, really the seedbed of the woke movement. And so um, I was ready to destroy my cultural enemy, my Pentecostal uncle who's brought my mother to Christ. And so I'm like, right, let him mention God and I'm ready. (laughs) Um, And so he's like, God something. And I was like, well, you Christians think you have the absolute truth. Well, let me tell you this. I think it's the absolute truth. You can't even communicate truth with language, let alone talk about God. I mean, have you read Foucault? Have you read Judith Butler? Do you know anything? No, because you're an uneducated nincompoop. And, you know... You're a lawyer. <laughs> you just spend your life punishing people for things that are just more mysterious and hard. And what about women? And what about other religions? Blah, 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 blah. And I was angry because he had evangelized my mom and that she'd become a Pentecostal Christian. And so this had created a rift in my family, so it's quite significant. Anyway, he says to me, David, there's, there's a bit of an issue of what you're saying. And Francis Schaeffer says, in passing, we should note this curious mark of our age the only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there is no absolute. And he said, you know, you said there's no absolute truth, that's an absolute truth, and you just communicated that with language, so you just doubly contradicted yourself. <laughs> I said, well, I'm queer. And, like, <laughs> stormed out of the room theatrically. Um, more fabulous than you'll ever be. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and he kind of leant over and he said, well, David you know, there is some truth in what you're trying to say. Look, the truth is not a concept in your head. It's a person that you know, and I don't know that person perfectly, but I know him relationally, and he is the truth. The truth is a person. And that made so much sense to me, but I couldn't admit that. Um, And so he had a prophetic word that I'd be saved in three months' time. And I'm in this pub in the gay quarter of Sydney, and there's this filmmaker there, and she's your everyday stock standard Pentecostal. She is tithing her money, she is fasting away, and she is in musical worship every day of her life. (laughs) And she's living this radical desire and holiness for God, and 
yet she's in this kind of creative industry and she was being, you know, um, mentored by famous industry filmmakers like Baz Luhrmann. I mean, she was like the height of success. She happened to look like Audrey Hepburn and have really great red lipstick and brooches. So I was like, I love this. And God had clearly picked the perfect evangelist for me. Um, and so I walk into this pub three months later and she's there. And I'm like, how did you get your film into the largest short film competition in the world? Like, that's crazy. You're like 19. Who does that? She said, well, do you want the real answer? I said, of course. And she's like, well, yeah, it, it, was, it was God. Like, oh. <laughs> Great. I'm so happy for you. That's wonderful. Well, is that like Jesus? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay. Oh, yes. Abrahamic religions. Okay. Um, and this voice is like, get away from this crazy fundamentalist. And then she says, well, yeah, well, I would have put it in this other competition, but I listened to God and I didn't, so it meant I put it into this one and it meant that it became the final film. So I listened to God, and if I hadn't listened to him, well, I'm like, You've listened to God? She goes, yeah, what do you think about Jesus? I was like, look, human invented religion that he's God, but, you know, great guy. <laughs> Probably top candidate if a human being was going to be God, but let's just, like, I'm gay. Let's stop talking about this. She says, yeah, I can kind of understand that. Wow, that's hot. Whoa. Well, whoa. <laughs> wow. Whoa, David, God really loves you. I'm like, excuse me? (laughs) It's really strong and I can just feel it right now. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh, okay, she's crazy. (laughs) And she said, David, have you ever experienced the love of God? And it was like this question just went right to the innermost part of my being, pierced right through past all the questions and all the heaviness and all the mystery, right to the most fundamental human need that we all have. And I said, you know what? I didn't know you could experience that. She said, well, I don't usually do this. In fact, I've never done this, but would you mind if I prayed for you? Look, I'm a good agnostic. Look, Han, I don't think anything is going to happen. Like, good luck. <laughs> so she lays hands on me like a good charismatic. In the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, I pray that Holy Spirit come and every demon of hell leave in Jesus. <laughs> like, okay, wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've adopted her prayer style. And um, <laughs> it's a, literally match made in heaven. Um, and, <laughs> and so... She's praying for me and I just go into this cocoon moment and I feel this kind of tingling sensation on top of my head and this like oil being poured on my head and I didn't know about the psalm that says, you know, I've anointed my servant David with my sacred oil. And it was just this kind of Davidic, Jesus-y goodness happening on me, through me, in me, in this moment. And I remember having this revelation like I was created for this. Like, this is the thing I was created for. And I'd done Buddhist meditation and, you know, Wicca and all the things in the book, except I was even a Reformed Jew for a week. So I really had a good covering of the religious situation. And I was like, this is real. <laughs> and um, so anyway, uh, I, I see this veil over my heart and this pinprick of light. 
uh, it says their hearts are covered with the veil and they do not understand, but whenever the, someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You know, every time I try to give a talk like this, I'm like, Lord, I'm going to give them like all my fancy Oxford stuff. He's like, no, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> and this is the work that God did in just this amazing moment of grace, and I just felt this veil come off my heart. And probably need to wrap up soon, but... Um, this was such an amazing moment. I just don't want to rush past it. I just, I feel like it's a prophetic message. In fact, it's not really about me. It was like God revealing what his heart is for me, but for like the gay community at large. And he was communicating something. And people didn't know what to do with me after this. So anyway, I hear this voice say, do you want me? And this breath entered me and this pinprick of light pierced this veil and it was like lifted off my spiritual eyes and I could kind of see. And I was like, I'm breathing without breathing. She's like, it's the Holy Spirit. He loves you. Hallelujah. I'm like, (laughs) I've just become part of a cult. Um, (laughs) And... And so, yeah, it was, it was really crazy. And then I heard this voice say, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I eventually said yes. And, you know, it wasn't all easy. There's so much more to say. There's such a wrestle in my life. Um, how long do I have, Steve? You've got 20 minutes. Great. Oh, I've got ages. I'll sit here for a while. Um, yeah, so... I just think like that moment was so important and what really happened was that I had the kind of mind of a atheist gay activist with the heart of a like Pentecostal on fire Christian in the pub (laughs) in the gay quarter of Sydney with a prophetic word that I'd be saved in three months time. That's a little bit different Um, (laughs) in a cultural moment where these things weren't really being discussed that widely. And I feel like there's almost this greater cosmic kind of, yeah, just providence in how God did this in my life. And, you know, I think it shows that God is both the God of the created order, um, and I'm going to discuss this in my seminar, and this is right at the heart of my doctorate, God who created the world for a reason, and that is important morally, and sexual difference matters, and has a sacral importance in our faith for our sexual expression. But God is also at the same time, and sometimes for us intellectually and emotionally, it's hard to grasp. He's the God of radical, apocalyptic inclusion. So what... What the task of the church is, is to live in the tension. The task of the church is not to resolve the tension. It's not to become an embedded hyper-conservative. It's not to become a hyper-woke activist. It's to sit in the tension of that mystery of God, how are you the God of the law and created order and this morality and this holy standard and yet this God who runs after every person that doesn't fit within that in the Jewish system. How are you that God? And that's actually a journey for us to really grasp. 
And sometimes we lean towards the created order. We're like, well, uh, 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 sorry, that's not holy. Dating culture, you know, like purity culture enters in as a kind of little attempt to wrap up the law with a bow and it just actually smells really bad and gross. <laughs> and then sometimes it's like, here's an inclusive God and the Bible doesn't say anything bad that we don't understand. It's all just affirming everything that ever existed and everything we ever desired. It's like, hmm, that's not going to work. <laughs> it's both. At the same time, he is God of created order, sexual difference matters within that, but he's also the God of radical apocalyptic inclusion. Another way of framing this is he's a God of radical differentiation and radical identification with our human reality. We see this in the Gospels all the time, and it's just so satisfying because, you know, Jesus embodies that perfectly. He is the perfect synthesis of moral truth and the radical gracious inclusion of the Father to a lost world. And that was happening right before my eyes within me in that pub. Jesus showed up and Jesus was true to his name. And I just think that's amazing. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for all the ways we fail to live within the created structures that God created as good. But he also took that creation that we couldn't live within because of sin and death, because our body had been subject to futility and decay, as it says in Romans, and he fulfilled that. He lived into those created structures perfectly. And you know what's fascinating is he was never married. He was celibate, which is just like interesting. The biblical word for that is a eunuch. <laughs> and what we see in Isaiah 56 is for this is what the Lord says. I love this because it's like this radical inclusive God was that God in the Old Testament. We don't have to commit the Marcionite heresy of hating the Old Testament because it has a moral standard. Praise the Lord. We can love the Old Testament because we see God promising to fill the gap where we couldn't as humanity where we were radically unfaithful in all sorts of different ways. God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the good shepherd. I'm going to be the perfect righteousness. I'm going to be the spotless lamb. I'm going to be everything you need, you need me to be because you can't do it. And that's what the Old Testament's meant to teach us. But even in Kuwait, within the Old Testament deposit, is this vision where it says, Israel, you're a light to the Gentiles. You know, the, the foreigners are meant to come in. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Ezekiel 47, the strange fish are attracted to this supernatural river that comes out of a supernatural temple that you couldn't build with hands. It's a strange vision. And to the presence of God, in the presence of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, God can vindicate the created order and radically include those who simply are drawn away from living into it righteously. 
And as a gay man, I don't have the capacity to do it. I live my days seeing very attractive men walking around, and sometimes I fail. I still can't live into the structures of creative good. And even if you're heterosexual, you might be able to marry. But we all know marriage is really hard. And you don't live the perfect marriage. No one can live up to that standard. And we have to get this because I have been pummeled into the ground recently with the leadership failures in the church. How can we stand up and say, here's the holy standard and I'm so good and look at this. And then we have all these leaders who've done horrendous things because they've been trying to live into the standard and it's not possible. We should know that. That's the gospel we preach. It doesn't mean we take that as a license to sin. It doesn't mean that when I'm struggling and I fail, there isn't sense of deep repentance and remorse at that. It's not a license to sin, but it is a freedom to know that I am justified, that my righteousness cannot be taken away. And you know, so I go home that night, and I'm going to come back to this passage. And she's trying to explain everything biblically to me that's happened, and I don't really get it. I'm like, it's going straight over my head because I had a gay activist head. I was like, what are you talking about? Revelation 14 or like, you know, this nothing made any sense to me. You're saved now. Like you're part of the family, the ecclesia, la la la. I'm like, what? There's like this big invisible like group of people that know Jesus and welcome to the party. And I'm just like, who are you? Like, are you a Jehovah's Witness? <laughs> um, and so she drops me home in the cab and my mum is waiting up. And I'd said to my mother, you have to choose between the delusion in your head and your real son standing right in front of you. So like, it's a really easy, easy decision, mom. Delusion, David. <laughs> real human, hi. <laughs> With a very profound personal part of my life that shows you God doesn't exist. Or delusion. Yep, mom, hi, you love me. And she said, no, I don't have to make that choice, David. By loving you, well, loving you is loving God, David, because he loves you, and he'll always run after you, and I don't have to make that choice. And that's the choice that the secular culture has put in place to the church, saying, choose. The holy God of Scripture that has a created order, or us. But they are not letting that apocalyptic, radical inclusion reveal the goodness of that created order in a different way. So I walk into the room, like, hi, mom. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to eat my words. <laughs> I haven't seen you in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, she's like, are you okay? I'm like, oh, yeah, fine. <laughs> yes. She's like, have you broke, what's happened? If you've been out somewhere or are you asking some questions, I was like, well, no, I just, um, I think it's, um, let's think I <laughs> think I've, um, it's become, it's, uh, it's like just, I became, like, 
like, are you okay? It's a Christian. I became a Christian. It's like, hallelujah. I knew he was the God of the impossible. Because, well, I said to him that if he saved you, well, I give him my whole life because I know he's the God of impossible because David, you were impossible to save. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, she's like, also, there was a prophecy. I'm like, mom, what, what world do you live in? What are you talking about? A prophecy. She's like, well, your uncle said you'd be saved in three months' time when you had that horrible argument with him at the Christmas lunch table. And that's been three months later. And look, it's happened. And you've been saved. And praise the Lord. And glory, praise laps happening in the front room of the house. <laughs> and you know, I've got the dramatic gene. Um, and... <laughs> It's probably from the Greek side, but I also got it from mum. But anyway, she's an opera singer. I had no choice. Um, <laughs> so I had like, like sung to me in the womb. Like, <laughs> poodles is dog, a dog, you know, like <laughs> a lot of stereotypes were ticked. But anyway, um, <laughs> and so I ring my aunt and uncle, find out about this prophecy, end up in my sleep. There's this washing sensation like in John, where it says, living waters will flow within you. And then I start to speak in tongues in my sleep. And this like heavenly language starts coming out of my mouth. And I wake up screaming, I'm part of a cult. And my dad rolls over on the other side of the bed and says, there goes another one. <laughs> and so I think it's so important to see that gift of tongues, especially in the book of Acts, is a sign of covenant inclusion that actually tongues is not just some fun little private gift where we get a nice little fuzzy feeling. And it can be like that, which is awesome, and it really helps. Spoken tongues on the train, this wasn't feeling great. But it helped me to get that power within me. But I think it's a much bigger deal, tongues, because it's about the apocalyptic inbreaking of that inclusion that Jesus purchased on the cross. The Holy Spirit could come, and prophecy is one of them, and any spiritual gift really is a sign of that. But it was a sign to me that as a gay man, I had been included into the covenant people of God and that nothing could wipe that away. And that God was this inclusive God that we see in Isaiah 56. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. 600 years before Jesus came. God's like sexual minorities, great. <laughs> gonna help them out, gonna give them a name even better than having kids and a marriage. And I live as a, having received that gift. And I'm not saying marriage is not a wonderful thing, but God says something even better than that. And some same-sex attracted or gay people will be called to marriage, and that's awesome. And called, you might want to call it a mixed-orientation marriage. Some people don't want to call it that because there's too much nomenclature as it is. But the point is, it's not just celibacy, but I feel like in that moment, he gave me this kind of apocalyptic ministry to be celibate, to re re reflect Jesus, who's the new humanity, who was celibate and a eunuch for the sake of kingdom of heaven and became a spiritual progenitor, give, giving life, eternal life to children of God, giving us a right to become children of God. And I received that, you know, fully in that moment when I was asleep in the bed speaking in tongues. So good news for LGBTQI plus people in Acts 8. 
So we don't just stop there with Isaiah 56. We go back into scripture and we see David Bennett's experience is actually kind of normative in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly. And we see this Ethiopian eunuch, a man who would have been unclean, couldn't enter the temple, had to go to a separate place to interact with Yahweh. Suddenly, in a desert, reading Isaiah 53, which is all about Jesus' sacrifice, and which says in that particular bit, who has heard of his generation? In other words, where are his kids? The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is a eunuch, is actually a sexual minority. That's radical, because that scripture was about the identity of Israel. In other words, Israel was going to be a eunuch. And Jesus embodies that and completes that whole reality and dies on the cross and has that cut off in his life. And so in Jesus' own body, he makes a way where there is no way for the eunuch. He makes a way into the temple, the new temple that he builds in his body for sexual minorities and gender identity minorities. Now, I might be pushing the eunuch thing a little far, but I've done a bit of research and, you know, the Greco-Romans hated eunuchs, and they loaded them up with the stereotypes of, you know, being vile against nature, all the things that, you know, you get with trans people and gay people. Eunuchs were seen as that, too, lacking this virility that could dominate the libido dominandi that men were supposed to have to be real men, whatever that means. Praise God for Jesus. He's the real archetype of real manhood. And he, yes, he had a real masculinity, but that was very differently configured to the Greco-Roman ideal. And sometimes we've let that sneak sneak into the church. And in Revelation 14, it talks about these virgins, these eunuchs, if you like, those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes and sing a special song and have a name that no one else has. And one of the weird things in charismatic worship is sometimes I just sing these crazy heavenly songs. I can talk about this stuff here because you guys are like, amen, you know, you get it as a tradition. But when I first came into the church, I was always singing these kind of heavenly songs and singing in tongues and in angelic melodies. And that's not just for celibate people, but I'm just saying there's some kind of like close linkage with Jesus here. I just want you to see the good news that we already have in the scriptures for this group of people. I'm not inventing this. This happened with what was understood as a sexual or gender minority of the ancient world. So what does this mean for us now? Well, I'm just going to finish my story and land. The I ended up going to university, all my queer friends were there, I started giving my sushi rolls to homeless people, a real sign of inner regeneration. Um, (laughs) And and my queer friends were like, he thinks he's met the creator of the universe, he's gone nuts, like, what am I gonna do? And I'm like, hi guys, just received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a free gift. Like the the love of God is poured out in our hearts by him. It's amazing. And Jesus did everything. And it's the cross. And I knew the gospel sometimes better than I do now in that moment. Like I was in love with God. And the Christians on campus did not know what to do with me. (laughs) Like at all. And I was still pro-gay marriage. I was still like in the you know, church. I wanted to see that change. I was still, but I was so in love with Jesus. 
And I think that led me down a path where I decided to eventually give my life to celibacy, and I found this promise for my situation in Scripture. But um, I still had this rational struggle. I still didn't really make sense to me. And I ended up at the film competition. I looked at the star in the sky, and I said, all right, God, if you're really real, I need a rational reply, like now, because I'm a gay activist. It better be good, because I got a lot to kind of give up. So yeah, great, thanks. That is <laughs> the prayer. And I ran down to the red carpet. She won the whole film competition, and she just said to me, David, you just need to know God exists. And he's been bugging me all night to tell you that. And I was like, that's the answer to my prayer, like 20 minutes later. And I was a Christian, and I think that experience of love held me, but it wasn't just God's love. I needed the love of the church. I needed the church to get it. And the reason that I spend time going around speaking on this topic. Sometimes it's really, really grueling ministry and quite hard and exhausting. It's because I want other people to see what I've received and I want the church to begin to see how good he really is. Because what happened to me in that pub is that the church had become the friend of Job to me. The church sat back and said, here's the theories for why you're gay. Ha, enjoy. But Jesus, God, became Job with me. And that's the distinction I think I want you to get, that this question is not primarily, although importantly, it is an ethical issue. It's foremost a mystery issue. It's foremost a theodicy issue, is the fancy term in philosophy of religion. It's about, is God really good? And did God really say? And so what I want to say to you is he is really good, and he did really say. And he has a way where it looks like there is no way. And it's our job as the church to find that together. And it's not just me. It's not just some guru who talks about sexuality. It's important to have speaking ministries on this, but it's us together seeing that goodness and seeing that he really is faithful and trustworthy of all of ourselves. And until we're able to release that trust, we are not going to be able to work out our sexuality. It took me a long time to get to the point where I could trust God with that very deep personal part of me and he showed me a way that I never thought I would be living. And so that's my encouragement to you through this session And thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.